Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Karen Swallow Pryor and Heidi White. Karen, Heidi, how's it going? It's going yeah, great. Doing Thanks. great. Thanks for being back on the show, back here to talk about Sense and Sensibility. We are here to discuss chapters uh, 16 through 22. I think it would be the end of volume one for those readers who are reading an edition that does include all three volumes. I was alerted to the fact... I asked last week whether... All editions have that, and it, it is not the case that all editions have that. Many of our listeners said that they do not have it broken down the way we had kind of had it on the on the schedule. So I asked... No. Um, I think someone said they were going to send me uh, on Facebook that they were going to send me uh, the breakdown of the chapters, not broken down that way, so I can post that as well. So I apologize for confusing those of you in, uh, the, that don't have the three volumes and asking you to do math. It's a great, <laughs> a great hardship. <laughs> so again, we are here to discuss the end of volume one. It is chapter 16 through 22. I think through these first three episodes, the math should be pretty standard. We should be okay. <laughs> and starting <laughs> next week, it might get a little more complicated. Uh, before we dive in though, I want to say a word from our friends over at Escondido Tutorial Services. Some, some of you might know the name Fritz Heinrichs. He has been in the classical education circles for more than 25 years. And he is out to develop fine minds who have an understanding of the great ideas of Western civilization. The dying art of civil discourse is one that needs much practice and finesse. And your junior high and high school students can hone this art through studying with, uh, with Fritz. He's been at it for 25 years, as I said. His five-year survey of the great books of the Western world includes works by, you know, all the essentials. Homer, Plato, Augustine, Calvin, Shakespeare, Dante, Chaucer, Cervantes, Dostoevsky, Kant, Freud, Marx, and uh, C.S. Lewis, too. Each week, students meet for a two-hour session discussing the reading and learning to dialogue with one another. They're required to write uh, several papers throughout the semester as well. And there is an opportunity for two free years of classical Greek for students who are enrolled in grade books two and three, while free Shakespeare companies year four. So I don't know of a lot of online courses or online companies that offer free courses to go along with their other courses. Fifth-year students will write two 3,600-word papers and present them um, through Escondido Tutorial Services or online, uh, answering questions from Mr. Heinrichs and the assembled fellow students. And those interested can join a four-day gathering each June full of debate, readers' theater, singing, dancing, and fantastic fellowship. So guided by the joyful Christian wisdom of Mr. Heinrichs and the great books, join a conversation full of truth, justice, love, and beauty. To find more how you can join the great conversation, please visit the Escondido Tutorial Service website today at gbt.org. Again, that's gbt.org. So thanks to Mr. Heinrichs. Um, he has been a friend of Cersei for, I don't know, since before Cersei began. So we are happy to uh, spread the word about uh, him and thanks to uh, he and his crew for being willing to support Close Reads this month. But let's discuss... 
chapter 16 through 22. And I wanted to start with a question or at least a topic that came up on the Close Reads Facebook group because a couple people mentioned... I don't want to put words in people's mouths exactly, but the gist of it was I'm having a hard time getting into sense and sensibility, mm-hmm. um, especially in these early chapters and expressing some, I don't want to say frustration, but just saying, help me, you know, <laughs> uh, help me. And hopefully that's what we're doing anyway. But I was thinking as I was reading 16 through 22, that it does feel like the story gets a little bit stagnant. And I don't know if that was me and I was tired when I was reading it, but I was wondering <clears throat> um, if either of you feel that same way, even as, you know, lovers of great books and Jane Austen and Karen, you're a Jane Austen scholar. <laughs> so I was curious if you feel the same way during these chapters or if it hums along in this at the same pace for you. And I know that this is kind of a subjective, it's not, it's not really a, you know, literary question, but I'm, I'm curious about your experience with it. So Karen, I'll ask you that first. Yeah, no. And, and, and I also want, I, I don't consider myself a true Jane Austen scholar. So okay, fair um, enough. <laughs> I'll stop referring to you that way. No, no, no. I mean, the English novel is my area of expertise. I haven't published in any um, peer review journals, uh, reviewed journals about Jane Austen, though my 18th century is more my specialty, but Jane Austen is my my love. Fair Um, enough, fair enough. I do think that, I I think the sense and sensibility is probably... the, one of the more difficult novels to read simply because it's not as polished, it's not as sophisticated. Mm. Um, I mean, other novels, you know, other novels differ from, you know, if we take, again, Pride and Prejudice as sort of the, the <laughs> pinnacle of Austen's writing, others are less satirical and more straightforward than Pride and Prejudice. This one is satirical, but just isn't as polished, is not as... Mm edited well i don't think um so i I just think it's rougher in many respects and so i I would i would agree that um the reading it can become tiresome until you kind of see the whole picture the process of reading it can be difficult until everything sort of comes together and um and then it becomes better if that makes sense yeah yeah heidi so heidi do you did you agree with me that it feels like it's kind of a I don't want to say slog, but it kind of seems to slow down a little bit here. Right. That's absolutely true in this particular novel. And I think it's a a bit par for the course in the comedy of manners genre, which is often called another kind of less used, less often used title for the comedy of manners is anti-sentimental comedy. So it's not necessarily trying to tug at your heartstrings to to grasp you through the plot, uh, to make you fall in love with these characters. Um, There is a sense that if you're not paying attention to some of the forms or familiar with some of the the ways that a comedy of manners is developed, that it does feel very much like a slog. Uh, It's not intended to be this great plot-driven adventure uh, or even one that captivates your emotional connection to uh, all of the characters. Right. So, um, and com- that combined with what Karen just said about how this is one of the less polished novels, I think we keep comparing it to Pride and Prejudice. 
which isn't necessarily the intention of the podcast, but it's, it's, I think it keeps coming up because Pride and Prejudice is so polished. As you're going through Pride and Prejudice, you care about all of these characters. You're laughing at Mr. Collins. You feel sorry for Charlotte, Lucas. You really want Miss Bingley to get her comeuppance, right? Like there's, there's this sense that even though it is a comedy of manners, which is less sentimental uh, than some of the other genres in, um, or some other ways of writing novels, there's still a way that Austin gets you into the novel. And, and that's a little bit missing from Sense and Sensibility, especially on the first read, I think. Right. After you know it, when you go back and reread it, I think this is a novel that gets better with age. I think the more you read it, the more you like it. Hmm. Um, so as I'm reading it again, this is, I think, only the third time I read it. And as I'm going through it again, I'm catching all these things that are really witty and interesting or connect later in the story that are coming right. alive to me again. But I think on the first read, it's kind of like, when are we going to get to the next thing that actually happens in this story? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, this, this novel really reads a lot more like an 18th century novel than a 19th mm. century novel. Mm. Um, and so if you begin reading 18th century novels like Richardson's Pamela or um, uh, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones or Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy, all of these are, are much more like this one, more intellectual novels. Like they're, they're dealing with ideas and the reader is expected to kind of engage with the ideas that are being presented more so than the plot and the character. And so um, mm. we're more familiar, most of us as readers of novels, even even you know, great novels, with the 19th century novels that, like Jane Eyre, there's this singular, unified, compelling voice that draws us in. Um, yeah. And yeah, that sort of sets the standard for... E- even satirical Victorian novels still have one voice like Pip and Great Expectations. Um, but this novel is is much more of the 18th century. And um, there's a just a huge difference between those early novels and then the way novels developed in the next century. So is this considered a transitional novel? Or is... I mean, I guess maybe Jane Austen herself considered that way. Yeah, I, I would see... Yeah, Austen definitely is a transitional novelist. She, she, you know, she draws... At, from heavily from and is influenced by the 18th century novelists, but she advances the art of the novel, um, and, and others, you know, and then other writers do so even even more. I mean, the novel really reaches reaches its height, I think, in the 19th century, and so Austin is kind of a, a stepping stone there uh, to that. Yes, you describe it as kind of an intellectual novel. That's a really interesting concept because as I was as I was reading. I was sitting on the couch and I was thinking, man, at the end of every chapter, I'm less, I'm not terribly inclined to go to the next chapter, right? Like there aren't those markers that kind of drive you to keep, to keep turning it. But I was thinking about how I was kind of in, intrigued by the questions it was asking, but it wasn't necessarily in a way, it was more like if I was reading, I don't know. Heidegger or something where mm-hmm. there's a question that's being asked and it's asking me to think about it and I kind of have to think pretty deeply about it and so in some ways it feels like um, I mean I, I'm going to use this term loosely but kind of like intellectual work whereas mm-hmm. you know sometimes I'll read a novel even, even Pride and Prejudice and I know again we don't want to compare it but you know we don't want to just compare it but there are times in Pride and Prejudice when you're like oh I've got to read the next chapter what happens next and we haven't right. gotten there yet even at the end of part three 
there's not or part one rather sorry there's not that sense that where there's this cliffhanger at the end of volume one that I have to get on to volume two to find out how it gets resolved. But there, but it is asking questions that mm-hmm. it's forcing me to kind of think about. And is so when you're thinking about this novel and how to teach it and how to read it and things like that, are those the kind of things that you're going to focus on more than sort of the structural plot type things that we sometimes are kind of accustomed to asking? Yeah, well, when I teach Austin... Um, I teach it in the context of an English novel course where we're studying the development of the genre. So I talk about I talk about some of the things that that I just mentioned, and we're because we're reading the text in chronological order. Um, then, then we see we see the form um, develop and change, uh, and, and focus more on that. But mm. but. Um, yeah, I mean, the 18th century is very much an age of ideas. The literature is still very much about ideas. Um, mm. And uh, and Austin, yeah, she, she just reflects that, I think, but takes, but she develops the art even more. Mm. Well, and I think another layer to that is also the fact that as we keep talking about this being satire, which is true. And so satire kind of pokes fun at the social climate of the age, the manners, the uh, the problems, the foibles, uh, uh, the hypocrisies and all those things. And, and this isn't our age. And so some of the things that would have been really entertaining and hilarious, the same way we might watch, you know, some satirical show on TV or read a novel now that makes us chuckle because we get it. Right. Like we're not necessarily oriented unless we're very, very steeped in this time, which many Austin lovers are, right? They know everything. Like they get <laughs> yeah. like, we're making a joke about the teacup and ha ha, it's hilarious. Like, but like, we don't get it. You have to orient yourself to that. Hmm. And so we're in some sense, modern readers are playing catch up all the time. And so uh, in order to get the joke, you know what, you know, Andrew Kern always says the goal of a classical education is to get all the jokes. I love that. (laughs) And I think that there's some truth to that. That adds another layer of depth and understanding in reading Austin because there are so many jokes that we don't get unless we take the time to kind of orient ourselves to that culture and what she is satirizing. Mm. Right, right. And I mean, this is a dated reference, um, but it's like the difference between Seinfeld and Friends. Right. Uh, (laughs) Seinfeld, we're, we're laughing at the characters we're not we're, they're not set up as models they're not none of them are people we really want to be our friends um and friends which i never really watched but just from what i know of it it's like yeah. people like they want to be friends with those characters because it's, oh, an, yeah. earnest, it's an earnest show and, and you're supposed to emulate them but not jerry and elaine <laughs> right <laughs> yeah 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 i was thinking about the question of so some people were saying i'm having a hard time getting into this and then for some people this book is what our friend Tim likes to call a heart book, right? He, it's a book mm-hmm. that it's one of their favorites. It's, they read it every year. They just cannot get enough of it. So I was trying to think about what are the, what are the, the, the things that about this book that you think are hard for people? And then on the counter, on the other side, what is it about the things that, what is it about the book that makes people? love it. And we've talked a little bit about the difficult side, but I'm, I'm curious in, in your experience, uh, Karen, I'll ask you first, because you've worked, you've probably worked, read it with a lot of different people who had very different responses to it. And I'm curious, what do you, what are the common threads uh, that people particularly love, you think? 
Well, I mean, people do love, I was just talking about this with, with a colleague of mine. Um, and she was, she was seeing sense and sensibility as one of the most romantic of Austin's huh. novels, even though it is satiric, um, yeah. you know, because there are, you know, there, are, there's not just one love story, but two love stories at the center and they're both compelling stories. Um, you know, and, and, and I think another, Austin's art is so sophisticated because even as we're supposed to, I mean, Mary, both characters are so complex. There are things that, that Austin clearly wants us to judge them for and critique them for, but yet we're also supposed to sympathize with them and, and like them and have compassion yeah. for both of them. And so, um, that's that's something that draws us in, but also makes it hard because we're constantly yeah. going, wait, how, how am I supposed to feel about yes, this character? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking that yesterday while I was reading, I was thinking some moments I really, really like one of the characters. And then the next page, I might, that quickly, I might be find myself being critical or wondering what, why are they making this choice or why are they speaking that way or why don't they stand up for themselves or something like that. And that creates a sort of dissonance that in some ways, especially at the end of volume one, it being unresolved can be, you know, can be disorienting and can be, can be, can be, maybe that's one of the reasons why we keep reading it, you know, to, to, to figure out how is it that I'm actually supposed to feel about this person? Of course, it's not limited for me anyway, to just Marianne and Eleanor. I mean, even the, 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 um, what, oh shoot, what are the names of the sisters that are also at the house that they're visiting and they're not, the seals. The seals. Yeah. They're kind of sitting in the room, staring at each other. Even there, (laughs) I don't totally know how to feel about them. And I don't totally know how to feel about, Sir John or, or any of the men in the book, basically. And <laughs> so at no point do I, except maybe the mother, maybe Mrs. Dashwood is the only one who I feel like I kind of get a sense of how I'm supposed to feel. And even there, I'm not convinced. So um, that kind of in some ways feels like it is the journey of the book in figuring out how I'm supposed to feel about the characters. Hmm. Hmm. At least maybe that's just maybe maybe you both feel like oh I know exactly how I'm supposed to feel. No, no, I think no. that that's I think we I think it's it's very complicated and that's that's what Austin is trying to I mean that's what makes her such a great artist because she knows human nature so well and captures it so well and human nature is not something that's entirely black and white people aren't entirely good or bad. So right. Well, how do you go ahead? Were you going to say something? Yeah, I I think one of the reasons that people love this novel is uh, Karen referenced earlier how this is a transitional novel and you asked the question, David, it's a great question. And I think one of the ways that this is transitional is that the comedy of manners is kind of known from Greek comedy on as having lots and lots of stock characters in them that represent certain ideas or foibles within a society, whatever we're supposed to satirize, right? And what Austin does that I love is that she for almost universally, with a few exceptions of people that kind of remain flat, that there are, that she humanizes her stock characters, even within the comedy of manners tradition. And so we feel something, the fact that we're in a traditional comedy of manners, say a, a Greek comedy, uh, by Aristophanes or something. Like, you know exactly, you're supposed to laugh at that guy. You're supposed to take that guy seriously. You're supposed to hate him. He needs to be killed off, right? In Austin, you you have an attachment to them as people. And 
I think in this novel specifically, that question of do women, and, and this is very, very feminine in this novel, do women, should we follow our hearts when it comes to questions of love or should we be more restrained and hidden? Right, that's that's a big question, sense or sensibility. And of course, the title of the book is Sense and Sensibility. Mm-hmm. And so we're still looking for some of the resolution of that. But a lot of the novel feels like sense or sensibility. And mm-hmm. we that's something that every person, not just women, but everybody has to make that decision many times in their lives. Mm-hmm. Am I going to, you know drunk dial somebody in the middle of the night. Am I going to do the right thing here? Am I going to, you know, these are the, these are the, you, you really dove like, right into that one, didn't you? That? You can edit that one right out if you want to. I'm perfectly fine with that. But those are the things that create attachments to books as you're going through something very human. And when you're not sure this or that, and, and there's a character in a novel that represents that same kind of internal struggle. And this is a big one. The, do I follow my head? Do I follow my heart? Is there a way those things can be reconciled? Do I have to choose one over the other? Does that mean I'm going to be unhappy? Like those, those are big human questions and this book takes them on. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that does create an, a level of attachment and great love for the book, even if you kind of have to wade through some of those other things that make it a little bit um, harder to get into. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Great speech, Heidi, but I am just still stuck on drunk dial. Please don't edit that out because I don't, that is a new phrase to me. And that's exactly what happens later. I didn't even know, I didn't even know, like, I, you just rocked my world. Thank you. I'm not going to give it away, but yes, we get a drunk dial, right? Yes. Is that what you were talking about? Yes, Yes, it was. Thank you. Because I thought of that. Yes, I love that. But um, apparently that's not a Liberty student. Right, right. No, Uh, no. So so everyone everyone who's losing patience, just hang in there for the drunk dial. That's right. Just wait. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because every time there's a there's a moment when I when I think I'm kind of getting frustrated with it. Then she gives us something like she gave us gives us the beginning of chapter twenty two, where she's uh-huh. talking about Marianne, right. and and she's well here I'll just read it. So it's the beginning of chapter twenty twenty two. You only let me double check that. Yeah, twenty two. It says Marianne, <laughs> who had never much toleration for anything like impertinence, vulgarity, inferiority of parts, or even difference of taste from herself, was at this time particularly ill-disposed from the state of her spirits to be pleased with the misdeals or to encourage their advances. And then she goes, This the whole paragraph is one Faulknerian cha- uh, uh, sentence. <laughs> and I love it is, how, you're right. I love how she gives us these long sentences and gives us these semicolons. And in this one paragraph, she essentially changes perspectives. Like what? I don't know. At least twice. Because then she starts talking about what Eleanor is how Eleanor thinks about it. And then she starts, she kind of switches over to what Marianne thinks of Lucy. And then the next paragraph begins with Lucy. And there's all these different perspectives, which while being disorienting are also, it's extremely entertaining the way she does that. And so I wanted to ask about the character of, of Marianne at the end of volume one, because I think most people, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but most people have a general sense of how to feel about Eleanor. You know, even if sometimes we kind of wish she would act a little bit differently or actually speak in moments when it's, you know, she chooses not to or, or whatever. We generally, I think, have a sense of how to, how to respond to her. Would you, would you agree with that or should we talk about that first? 
at the uh, end of I, volume one. Yeah, no, I think that I think you're right about that. I think that's true about Eleanor. Yeah. Karen, do you agree with that or should we stop? Yeah, I mean, I, I I know how I feel about her and I'm and I think my feelings are right. So um I, <laughs> <laughs> So you're I mean, Mar- as, you're a Marianne in that moment then. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so, because I <laughs> I've always said I am Eleanor, but yes, I guess, I guess I just admitted to being Marianne. Too. I know I have so many follow-up questions on the you as Eleanor thing, but this doesn't need to become a, a therapy session or a getting to know you session, but I'm yeah. so curious. You could tell me later. So. Karen, I forgot to warn you that Heidi did go to school. She's a trained uh, counselor. So. Oh, that's so interesting. Did you know that there's a great book about, um, about Austin and like psychotherapy. I just, yes. yes. Someone yes. just told me about it and yeah. I've not read it, but I'm going to. So it's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could have a whole episode where we just analyze each other based on that book, I suppose. But okay. okay that's so, so fun. I can't wait for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I said that out loud. Okay. So, <laughs> so let's talk about Marianne a little bit then, because I, I think we at least have some common ground on Eleanor, but I'm curious to know, you know, this, I think this paragraph here kind of gives us a good summary at the end of volume one of who Marianne is. And so are we supposed to, do you think maybe, well, I maybe, I don't know if I should ask supposed to, or how do you feel, but are we supposed to at the end of volume one, um, feeling like she is a problem in this story? So Eleanor kind of, I think, has evolved. I mean, if she wasn't always, but she's evolved into the one who is sort of our protagonist, the one who we see the story mm-hmm. through, probably, um, if we're looking at in sort of those traditional, you know, forms. But is Marianne the one who is kind of our problem that, that is kind of the wrench in the story at this point? Because are the, the, the sort of structures of the, the love stories haven't totally formed yet. We have some hints at them and things like that. But that sort of problem part of the story or that part of the story as a problem has not come into focus yet. But through volume one, it seems like the question, there is this big question of Marianne, kind of like there's a question of what's her name at the beginning of Sound of Music. <laughs> um, yeah, Maria. How do you solve the problem like Maria? Yeah, exactly. So is that a, is, is my reading on that fair? Do you think, Karen, I'll ask you first and then, and then Heidi. Yeah, I mean, I think so. At this point, I would I would characterize Marianne as the as um, an object of satire. I mean, maybe not even the main object of satire because we've got other. You know, there are many of them. But sure, so, sure. for example, at the very start of chapter sixteen, um, mm-hmm. this passage I just wanted to to read and look at um, the opening. Marianne would have thought herself very inexcusable had she been able to sleep at all the first night after parting from Willoughby. She would have been ashamed to look her family in the face the next morning had she not risen from her bed in more need of repose than when she lay down with it. Um, so she, you know, so Willoughby has departed and she is, you know, heartbroken and she knows how a heartbroken person is supposed to act. Mm. And so she has this self-consciousness and self-awareness. And it's, <laughs> it's hilarious because it's not, it's not just genuine. It's actually a bit affected. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And later on when Edward shows up and they have this discussion of, of art and aesthetics and the, and uh, the picturesque, um, you know, Eleanor sort of corrects both of their affectation, um, and, you know, Edwards as well. Um, and Marianne wants to, you know, it, 
I mean, she's uh, is aware of herself and she wants to yet this, think of herself as she's aware of the formula she's supposed to follow yeah, yeah, for yeah. romanticism. Yet at the same time, she's a, she wants to be unique. <laughs> you know, she doesn't <laughs> yeah. want to descend into cliche and jargon. And so that starts to complicate her a little bit because she has the self-awareness um, and yet we all have that too. And so that makes her sympathetic at the same time she's satirical. Sometimes I feel like the more we try not to be a cliche, the more cliche we become, especially when <laughs> yeah. we're teenagers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. <clears throat> That's interesting that you brought that passage up. I'm glad you did because in some ways comparing that passage with the one that I read in 22 is interesting. Um, I love how she, she it talks about how she made herself stay up all night and then she made herself wander off alone. This is all <laughs> in 16. So you, as you said, she she kind of knows the part that such a person would would look, would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then and then in 22, it's basically like she her views of the world are you know it's her way or the highway type thing basically, which maybe this is just her being you know how old is she supposed to be like teenager essentially right. 17, right? 17, yeah. Yeah, so that makes sense, actually, right? What <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 17-year-old's not the problem, right? Um, <laughs> but as you said, we keep getting these moments where people are coming up, kind of brushing up against her. You know, there's always... Somebody's kind of always arguing with her, calling her on something. Heidi, do you find yourself saying, yeah, you, you, you tell, tell her the truth, um, Ferrars or tell her the truth, Eleanor or whatever. Like, do you like, mm-hmm. does it, is it, is it, there's some kind of like catharsis uh, in, in people telling Marianne that she's being silly? Right. I think that, that, that is, again, some of the wish fulfillments that we have as the reader and we get to say, oh, thank goodness someone is telling Marianne to get over herself. Right. <laughs> because, um, that's she needs to hear that and that's what life is doing to her in many ways that's the whole trajectory of her character arc in this novel is to go from romanticism to a realistic view of love of art of happiness and family um but like you pointed out that's the trajectory of every idealistic 17 year old human being. And so she's not an object of uh, derision in the, sat- in, in the satire. Even that sentence that you read at the beginning of chapter 22, the first few things in that list, Marianne, who had never much toleration for anything like impertinence, vulgarity, inferiority of parts, like that's actually what I'm trying to do as I train my children. I don't want them to have much toleration for those things. That's good. But then the next thing in the list or is, or even difference of taste from herself. (laughs) The thing with Marianne is that she has not yet learned humility Mm -hmm. as a human. And, but she has a lot of goodness and virtue. And so we do see that in her. Um, And that I think is what kind of protects her as Karen pointed out from becoming not just like, we want to kind of poke fun at her and laugh at her a little bit because she's such an adolescent. Like she's so callow and immature. um, And because of that, she's kind of arrogant. But really there's so much goodness and purity and and desire for the right things that what we're looking what what we're seeing is the formation of her to mm. become humble mm. um and 
And that is a good thing. So I I do think she is an object of satire, absolutely, because she represents something going on in the society at that time. And so there's the public level and the personal level that we just really are, we we can laugh at, but we're laughing at it good-naturedly, not, not as like lost. And she also, you know, again, and this is where we all need to, to be developed. She, she lacks, it's not just um, humility, but even per- perspective, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a, a recurring theme in Austin. Like everything is, she sees everything from her own situation. She doesn't have the circumspection, you know, for example, that to just understand that she should not be going off and, you know, visiting, uh, uh, you know, a home alone right. with a man. And, um, you know, she just doesn't see the way other people see. So that prevents her from having empathy and compassion. She just sees everything from her own, you know, narrow place in the universe that's, and of course Eleanor, that's a good point yeah, go no no so and, and Eleanor kind of goes you know to the opposite extreme at least at this point she's she's almost too circumspect too too concerned with how things look not in a hypocritical way but just in a way that that makes her own you know that where she closes off her because she's so concerned with everyone else right Mm. Well, and I think you made such a good point about Marianne, and one that I think modern readers um, don't always understand is how that there is a sense of suspense about Marianne right now that modern readers are going to miss that that kind of page turning because she's in danger right mm-hmm. now. Her her reputation, her character, her virtue. If if she has been doing all these things and she's not engaged, which becomes increasingly a focus in the novel. Right then her her reputation, her virtue is in danger. Right. And we, at this point, see like, oh no, she does love what is good, mm-hmm. but she's foolish. Man, is she foolish. And, and there's so much at stake for her that we as modern readers are mm. quite able to catch without a little bit of education about this novel. Right, right. And you know, and, and reading closely, I mean, Marianne is, is our teacher in that sense because of her own abhorrence to uh-huh. second attachments. So that's where her danger comes. If she ends up, and again, I'm not giving anything away, but if she ends up, um, you know, betrayed and and uh, abandoned by her first love, then by her own standards, she she's in this danger because any other any future relationships will be a second attachment, um, which she already has rejected. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're right. There's so much about this world that's foreign to ours that that we do miss some, some of the some of the things get dramatic. That last point is that you were making there is really interesting about you know the second attachments thing because I was struck by how we kind of don't really know him very well, Willoughby. That is, we we don't. I mean, he's kind of a. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to say he's he's just a cliche or something, but we don't we don't he's kind of a mystery. Uh, you know, we talked about that with, I think last week a little bit, but so, so then she has invested so much of her, of herself, of her future, of her, um, you know, reputation into this guy who even Eleanor doesn't really know. Um, and she doesn't really know if she can trust him. And so we, as the readers are, you know, that heightens that sense because, because she's, basically putting her trust in someone who nobody knows if she's trustworthy or he's trustworthy. And in some ways I feel like that puts us, it puts us on Eleanor's side. And I mean, I keep trying these distinctions here. I don't really mean to do that, but it makes, it allows Eleanor to be more of like a proxy for us in some ways because she doesn't trust 
right. she doesn't know anything more than we do about him, really. And and a, right. that that's a really it's really interesting that, that you know, and it's not it's something that I guess teenagers do, right? <laughs> we don't know who to, we put our trust in people who we probably shouldn't have, we shouldn't. But do you think that that is meant to be? Like, do you think that when Jane Austen does that, when she says Marianne is putting her trust in this guy who we don't know if he's trustworthy, is she saying that that is, is that meant to just be kind of a, a funny satirical thing? Or is, this, is that meant to be sort of a, how do you use the word danger? Is it meant to be a serious, a serious thing? Is she making a serious, some kind of serious comment there? Well, I, I think the answer to that that is in Mrs. Dashwood. So it's not, hmm. I mean, we do have Marianne being sort of a young, foolish teenager, but so is her mother. So this uh-huh. isn't just about, you know, being an immature teenager. Her mother also puts too much trust in, in Willoughby and in Marianne. And so I think Austin is making a larger um, social criticism here because so many women in this society, because of the the way things were set up, were in danger of making these kinds of errors um, Mm. just because, you know, there was so much pressure to, to marry and to marry well. And that's the only, you know, opportunity women had to to provide for themselves. Mm. Mm. Right. Right. I agree. And at the very beginning, they, Austin does tell us how much, um, there, Mrs. Dashwood is more like Marianne, or it would be the other way around. Marianne is more like Mrs. Dashwood, and so we know kind of right from the get go that this is this is a mother who loves her children very deeply. She's attached to them, but she's there. She might err on the same side that Marianne does. And so, to your point, David, yes, I do think that Eleanor then becomes kind of this expected voice of reason. Right, right. When we see her making a statement like that, then, um, yeah, I do think from the very beginning, kind of Austin has given us clues, pay attention to that. Right, Eleanor is the grown-up in the room here. That's that's clear from the beginning, yes. Yes. There's that line in 16, not too far from where you were reading, Karen, where it says, but Mrs. Dashwood could find explanations whenever she wanted them, which at least satisfied herself. Mm. So where she's, no no letter from Willoughby came and none seem, seemed expected by Marianne, which, which reminds me that whatever happened between them, we don't know about, and neither does Eleanor or Mrs. Dashwood. Whatever happened between them and why he left. Right. And that's, am I right in thinking that? That she, he just left and Marianne knows, but it hasn't been explained otherwise? Yes. Right. Yes. And we still don't know as the readers what took place right. between Marianne and Willoughby when they were alone talk- and before he took his leave of her. Right. Eleanor thought this generosity of her mother overstrained, interesting word there, <laughs> considering her sister's youth and urged the matter further, but in vain. Common sense, common care, common mm-hmm. prudence were all sunk in Mrs. Dashwood's romantic delicacy. Mm-hmm. Do you think that I wonder what would have happened in this story had Mr. Dashwood been alive? Hmm. Like, would, is, would he have? I mean, could this story? Could, I mean, can you tell the story? I mean, I guess Pride and Prejudice does, <laughs> but how does the story break? How does the story work out if he's there to kind of balance out her? Does it? Can can does it make her seem too ridiculous to have some kind of like you know serious male character? I mean, all the other serious male characters are made fun of. So maybe maybe you could do kind of an inversion of of Pride and Prejudice in some ways. But it seems like 
Marianne and Mrs. Dashwood are kind of a very similar person. And then there's Eleanor, but she doesn't have anyone kind of on her side or with, with her uh, on that side. Because we don't know much about the little sister. Right. Right. Well, and there's not really a lament of that, which is interesting. I've never noticed that before, David. Um, that, you know, Eleanor doesn't. We don't have any record in the novel of them saying, if, you know, if father were alive, dot, 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 might happen. But we do have three unprotected women without a fortune. Um, so, and that definitely shapes Mrs. Dashwood's response to Marianne and Willoughby. Right. And the men who, you know, should, or the man who should have looked out for them, John Dashwood does not. So, um, there's no guarantee in this world that the men who are present and have enough power to, um, care for the women the way they, I mean, yeah. Hmm. The I somebody posted a uh, Jesse a long time long time listener she posted on the Facebook group a poll who's your favorite Jane Austen man or something like that and so they, people were just adding I mean I think it got to like fifteen at one point <laughs> people were just adding all their favorite men and that that will tell you a lot about a person I feel like who you choose as your favorite uh, Jane Austen man I feel like there's got to be Heidi you probably could have a field day figuring out what that means about people. <laughs> <laughs> right who's your dreamy jane austen hero right well, i guess That's, it could go but it goes both it goes the other way too job. i think that she doesn't have a stock her heroines are fully developed characters and even though men we talked about this last week even though men to her seem a little bit like a um some kind of like foreign you know species that she's not quite familiar she still writes very different men into her novels there's not just kind of every single one of them is a mr darcy or an edward Ferrers. um so they're yeah. they're, they're pretty well drawn okay so let's kind of talk let's kind of talk transition here moving from volume one to volume two in some ways for me, it feels like volume one is sort of the Marianne volume. And so my instinct is to say, well, wait, is volume two going to be the Eleanor volume or something now? Um, what are the threads as you wrap up volume one and we move into volume two that you're kind of keeping an eye on that are most intriguing to you that, or that you will think people should look out for? And is my theory of volume one being the Marianne volume and the volume two being perhaps a someone else volume does that hold up for either of you well, karen i'll ask you first I, i'm not i won't make it open in it i'll ask karen directly <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I i yeah i'd have to think about that i mean i i think i think more we talked about this a little bit last week about kind of the parallels that um that exist throughout the, the novels so in volume mm-hmm. one you know we have you know, the two sisters and their two love interests and both of them uh, both male interests, love interests leave um, in one way or another, whether uh, physically or emotionally or, or both. Um, and so I, I, I think I would be more, again, partly because I, I know how it turns out and <laughs> I've read it a few times. Um, I think that there's just this um, moderation throughout between you know, sense and sensibility between Eleanor and Marianne, between the love stories. And so, uh, but it, it, it's, I think it's just mainly significant that we do at the end of volume one, we leave with Eleanor having discovered this, you know, this horrible, shocking thing about Edward and, and Lucy. Um, so. Mm. 
It's a good yeah, cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, we didn't really get into it. We didn't really get into some of that too much. I've been a little unsure how to tread because you start giving away a lot. <laughs> um, if to start to when you start talking about the resolution of it. Um, yeah, I guess I said earlier there isn't really a cliffhanger, but there kind of is, depending on how you look. Depending on how you look at it, how do you? How do you? What do you think? Yeah, I I think that this is a big cliffhanger, and I think that your point about the transition is really really true, though. That we are going here from kind of the great Marianne's great testing point to Eleanor's great testing point. Mm-hmm. They're both in a crucible right now, mm-hmm. and. Uh, they're that that crucible is going to form them. Um, and that is and again, if we go back to the title, how important titles are, um, we're not sense or sensibility, we're sense and sensibility. And so they're they're kind of representing two ends of a continuum. How is this these two great trials that they're going through going to like draw out the other part of them? that is being sublimated or not developed yet. Hmm. One thing that... Um, I, the idea of all these pairings um, and comparisons, I guess one of the reasons we keep going back to comparisons is because the book's kind of asking us to, to compare things over and over and over and over again, as you mentioned, Karen. And it's not just Marianne and Eleanor. It's <clears throat> We're being asked to compare Edward and... You know Willoughby and Colonel Brandon, and then you know the Steels and the and the um, Dashwoods, and you know, over and over and over again, the novel is asking us to do comparisons. And in and in some ways, I feel like it ends. Volume one ends by asking us to compare the way Eleanor responds to the news she got and the way yes. Marianne responds to whatever news she got. We know less about that news, I guess. Um, <laughs> right. But, but that's you know we so we're given you know Eleanor does not the the clues that you know it, it mentions in what uh, twenty or twenty one or something that Eleanor she knew she had to respond differently to what was going on than Marianne so she so whereas Marianne was kind of actively sulking <clears throat> Eleanor knew she couldn't do that and then at the very end here we get it talks about composure Eleanor right. she had mm-hmm. composure in her voice I I think that's it. Um, I did, said Eleanor, with a composure of voice under which was concealed an emotion and distress beyond anything she had ever felt before. She was mortified, shocked, confounded. And in some ways, that, you know, her response is um, more um, real than Marianne's in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, she has this very real feeling that she responds to with composure, whereas Marianne right. feels like she's having to like, Forced, she, she's like she feels like she she's gonna feel a certain way, so she plays this part. Yeah, and, and Eleanor, indul- it actually tells us she indulges the feelings by going back over the same yeah. poetry and music, and but and and Eleanor, yeah, exhibits self control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it compo- Eleanor being composed and Marianne being indulgent. I'm glad you brought that word up. That does seem like uh, good words to attach to each of them at the end of Volume One. But then that that also, you know, each of their responses is going to have consequences. And, uh, and, and in that passage that you just read, I mean, it's really important to understand that Eleanor really does have feelings. I mean, even though she's able to control them, you know, and, and it's great self-control, she's really feeling this. And so she's not, you know, she's not stoic and unfeeling at all. Um, she's struggling. So that really humanizes her. 
And, yes. it, and it says that once the steals, you know, she sits there with the steals for a while, you know, mm-hmm. and she's in pain, she's hurt, but she sits there long enough. She doesn't walk away by herself like Marianne. She she stays with them. She has the conversation. And then after they leave, it says that Eleanor was at liberty to think and be wretched. Yeah. Uh, and that's how volume right. one ends. Um, and that, I, I just, the the comparison in the way they respond is is um, really profound. And you know, the funny thing is, I I it's I kind of don't want to make too much fun of Marianne because I mean you kind of have to make some fun of her, mm-hmm. but we don't totally know what the situation was. And also, you know, going through things, people go through things differently and they endure things differently and they feel different things. So you, I kind of want to have empathy for her. And right, but Eleanor's composure in some ways makes it harder to have empathy for Marianne for me. Hmm. But I don't know right. if that's fair. That's probably not fair. It's kind of maybe as a harsh, harsh comparison. I mean, that we have that we compare Marianne to her sister is maybe, maybe deeply unfair to Marianne. Even as we're saying, can you not? Can you not be more like your older sister? Um, I think, David, that you're putting your finger onto something really important about this novel that makes it enduring and great over the centuries. Even though we kind of keep talking about that, it's maybe not the level of sophistication of some of her other novels, whatever. But there is this kind of choice between binaries in this novel, but she also synthesizes it. So it isn't that Marianne is bad and that Eleanor is good or that or the other way. But as readers, and we've talked about this a few times on the podcast, as readers, we our reactions kind of mirror our own selves as we're looking into it. Like what you just said about uh, Marianne and Eleanor, you, you are much more like Eleanor, having known you for a long time now. And so it is very easy for that the the person who is going to rise to that occasion, who's not going to sit in a room and be rude to these two other people because her sister can't like handle herself, right? That's the kind of thing that goes through the mind <laughs> in that moment. Um, is going to cast a bit of judgment on that the other way around. Like, how can you just sit there and ignore your feelings? Like, that's not healthy. Just like you don't have to sit there and make these two rude girls happy, uncouth women happy, just like go and, and, and deal with your stuff, right? That's going to be more the Marianne reaction. And so as you pointed out, you're kind of forced to make these comparisons and these judgments as you're reading it. But then what Austin does is kind of synthesize those threads and weave them back into the relationships of the novel and the harmonizing that takes place over the course of the novel. And I think that's why this novel is so great and mm important still in the in the development of novels and in Austin's canon. I really like that you just your brain told you not to say rude girls and instead told you to say uncouth women. <laughs> I got to try to rise to this to, I mean this is Jane Austen. I got to try to make my language at least somewhat worthy of her. <laughs> um all right well um we should probably, for the sake of whatever the internet or surrounding each of us is doing, uh, start wrapping this up. So, um, Karen, do you have any final thoughts you want to add before we dive into Act or Volume Act Two, Volume <laughs> Two? Um, I just, yeah, I just want to encourage uh, those readers who are having some frustration um, reading it. Um, th- that that's fine. That's normal. And uh, the it ends up being worth it and even more so as Heidi mentioned before on a reread. So um, mm-hmm. if you are rereading it, pay attention to what you already know. And if you're reading it for the first time, just hang in there. It's, it, 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 
it gets better and mm-hmm. it's worth mm-hmm. it. Do you have any particular clues or um, tips or anything like that for volume two as people are kind of diving in this next week? Hmm. Don't uh, give up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Heidi, you have anything? I'll look through and see. Well, I would say as we go through here, watch some of the minor characters. Mm-hmm. Watch how, for example, the Palmers are perfect example of this. Um, watch them, watch how Mrs. Is it Mrs. Jennings? Is that the right Mm -hmm. name? Right. Yep. I got suddenly mixed up with another mother in a different Austin novel. So, um, (laughs) there's lots of mothers. Watch some of these minor characters in this part two and see have maybe our, and watch kind of the thread of perspective change and develop on these characters that were in part one, mostly an object of derision or satire and see what happens. I think that's really important to this novel and easy to miss the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the setting does change. They go to town. And so anybody who's just kind of bored with the country life, uh, we get a change in setting. And again, some new kind of um, social norms and customs that we might not be familiar with um, come into play. Um, and it's helpful to just kind of remember that, that, that there's more resonance and significance to some of those things than we might, um, that we might understand today, but they, they do heighten the drama. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you to you both for your comments and your encouragement and your conversation. As always, this was a great time. I know this has been really fun. Thanks, David. Yeah, next week we will dive into volume two. So I will post um, the math free. Well, I'll, we'll figure out the math and then post it so you don't have to do the math to, uh, to, to figure out which chapters are which if you are reading a book that does not have all of the... Well, I, is it three volumes? I guess it would still... Chapters can't be that much different. I mean, how, how, how hard can this be, honestly? It's like Brighthead. <laughs> now Remember that I'm saying it out loud, it can't yep. be that hard. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, if you do the math, then other people don't have to. So yeah. you're so good at math. Yeah. And nobody told me there would be math. So I'm not signed. I didn't sign right? up for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, all right, fine. I'll do it. Um, well, thanks to you both. And of course, thanks to Fritz Heinrichs and the Escondido uh, tutorial service to learn more about their courses. You can head over to GBT. Org. Don't forget, you can join the conversation about this book over on the Close Reads Facebook group. There has been lots of great chatter over there, including Jesse Brown's poll about which of Jane Austen's men you like best. And then also we have the Close Reads Instagram page where you can get access to all kinds of stuff going on on the network and stuff from the Daily Poem and all, kind of, all kinds of other stuff. So check that out. That's at Close Reads Pods. And of course, we do have our email newsletter at Close Reads Pods, um, at CloseReadsPodcast.com. You can find that and sign up there. And then if you want to email us, you can email us at CloseReadsPodcast at gmail.com. So, all right, there's lots of business. Uh, got all the lists of social media accounts and all that out of the way. So we can sign off for today, but for Karen Swallow Pryor and for Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next week and happy reading in the meantime. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.